it's been a crazy day. Stuff has just kind of been in the system. So walking on stage just a minute ago with my mic on, it got caught on the door handle and ripped off my back. So it is no longer functional at this moment. So we may need to add a little bit to what we need in the capital campaign. It's a matter of fact. But here's what I believe. It's been a crazy day because it's an important day, not just with the capital campaign, but what we're going to talk about here in a minute. An enemy has no desire for us to be passionately devoted, all in living for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to move forward doing what God's called us to do. And I want to start by asking this question, and it's simply, what do you want your life to be about? I mean, what do you want your life to come to? What do you want to do with this time you've been given? So you're like, I don't, I don't, really, I don't really think about that. I just got to do. And, and I guess if you ask me that question, if I could hang out with people that like me and if people would think I was a good person and if I got money in the bank and a good job and a good wife and good kids and a nice car, it doesn't have to be too nice, just a nice car in the garage and I got some long weekends and just a few good friends to spend the time on earth that we have together. If I could just have that or could have a nice retirement, fun retirement, so that when I get done working, I'm, I just have fun. When it comes to the end of life, if that could be quick and easy, I don't, I don't want any prolonged illness. If that could just be quick and easy, and then, you know, I'd prefer not to go to hell. If you give me that, I'm good. It sounds kind of like the American dream, right? We live, we work, we get a good thing, we make enough money to retire, we retire, we we see our kids and our grandkids, we spend time, we do all that, and then at the end we look back and we think, well, I've had a pretty good life. But the truth is, from a biblical perspective, that is a tragedy in the making. That's not what we were intended to do. I read this week about two ladies. One was named Ruby Ellison and the R was Laura Edwards. And they were killed in April of 2000 in a car accident in Cameroon when their brakes on their vehicle failed and they went off a cliff. Now, Ruby was over 80 years old. Never married. And had spent her life on mission telling the poor and the uneducated and the hopeless about Jesus Christ in Cameroon. Her friend Laura was almost 80. She was a widow who had moved to Cameroon to go right beside Ruby. And she was a medical doctor who had practiced with her. And these two ladies working together for the glory of God, while most of their friends had retired years earlier, ended up in a car that went over a cliff. Some people look at that and go, man, what a tragedy. I look at it and I think, that is the life spent devoted to the Lord. I read about another couple from the Northeast who had planned all their lives for this. And so when he turned 59, she was 51, they retired and moved from the Northeast to Punta Gorda, Florida. And they had a boat and they get out on the boat and they play softball and they collect seashells. And they asked them in this interview, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And they said, we want to ride out on our boat and play softball and collect seashells. And it sounds, well, that's good, but they've made it. They've got to that place. They're settled. They're secure. And to me, I think, well, is that what we're intended to do? And I just feel like we're created for more than that. And we've allowed our culture to convince us that that's good enough. 
Be a good family. Train your kids. Don't let them mess up too bad. Get them into college. Get them a good job. You get grandkids. You get to spoil your grandkids. Send them back with the parents. You have a good time. You retire. You go back every now and then. Say hello to everybody. But you spend your life on a beach somewhere. That's the life. I compare that to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. two. Don't turn there. We're going to go somewhere else in a minute. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, I've decided to know one thing. This is my life. This is my goal. This is my purpose. This is why I'm here. And this is what I've decided. I have decided to know Christ and Him crucified. Now, I just want to think for a minute about all that Paul taught. He says, when I was with you, the only thing I talked about, the only thing I focused on, the only thing I was about was about Christ and Him crucified. Now, while he was with the Corinthians, he talked about lots of stuff. When he wrote to them, he wrote about lots of subjects. But he says, to understand life and to understand truly what it's all about, we come back to the central point of Christ and Him crucified, and that our entire lives revolve around that. And he uses a word there when he says, I want to know. Now, for most of us, when we think of the word know, and if you've been around here over the last few years, we, we talk about this some. When we hear the word know, we think of intellectual knowledge. Like, do you know your spelling words? Do you know what happened the other day? Do you know what just went on? Did you know what happened last night on this television show? We think of intellectual knowledge, but that's not what Paul says. That's not the word he uses. The word he uses there is to know by experience, to experience and feel and understand understand at a deeper level. I was thinking about it this week because the classic illustration I've used is um, growing up, mom, I I saw somebody, I don't know who it was, it may have been one of you, or it may not have been, took a picture of what they were cooking that night, put it on Facebook, and it was salmon patties. How many of you know what salmon patties are? There you go. When I was growing up, just confession time here, those were not my favorite. And it wasn't just the, the salmon. We didn't call them salmon patties. We were sophisticated. They were salmon croquettes. All right? And it wasn't just that there was salmon. I'm not saying anything. I like salmon now, but I did. I didn't like But it was everything that went along with it. You know, it was, that was the night we had the vegetables I didn't like. And I knew when I came in and I smelled the salmon croquettes that it was peanut butter sandwich at nine o'clock time, right? My parents didn't allow that, but that was what I would have thought. And so we would sit down and we would begin to eat and mom would look down at us. Mom, who had come in from work and spent all this time cooking, and she would look at us and she would just say that saying, just in the way she only could say it, which made us feel absolutely terrible when she saw that we had been less than satisfied by our salmon croquettes. When she would say, are y'all not going to eat any more than that? Are y'all full? Are you not hungry tonight? Something, are you sick? Is something wrong? And so we had no mom. We're fine. And then she would say, well, you know, you know what's coming? There are kids. And my mom's particular, my mom's particular continent was Africa. Yours may have been China. I don't know. There are kids in Africa who would love to have what you have and would be glad to eat salmon croquettes tonight. Anybody else ever have a mom do that? All right, now, now, now question. How many of you have ever said that to your kids? Uh, yeah, I'm not going to say that to my kids. Uh, yeah, I do. All right? 
So I knew that, right? I knew that. Okay, Mom, I got you. I got you. They're not here now. They can't have it. I understand. I, I would never say that to my mom. Or my, my punishment would have been bad, but no. In the summer of 1998, graduated Union University. Susan and I were planning a wedding, and I went on my first trip to Belo Horizonte, or more specifically, Nava Cantaja in Brazil. And I walked into an orphanage where I was going to be working all week. And there before me were kids that had been dropped off three days beforehand, many of whom were starving. And my knowledge went from, I know there are kids in the world who are not hungry, Mom. I understand that, to, no, I know. I'm experiencing kids that are hungry. There's a difference there. Amen? There's a difference. It's like people that have gone through major illness and somebody comes up to you that you know hasn't gone through that and they say, I know what you're going through. And you know they're just trying to be nice, but you go, no, 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 you don't know. And then you go through it and you're like, now I know. Paul says the one goal of my life, the one thing that I want to do, the one thing that I impressed upon you in Corinth is this, to know Christ and Him crucified. Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Here's what we're going to do today, all right? We've been in this series called All In, and we're just going to stop for a moment and intensely look at the person of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross. Now, Isaiah chapter 53, what's astonishing about this passage of Scripture is that it is written hundreds of years before Jesus would actually be crucified, but it gives us all the details we need to understand the depth of His sacrifice and what it meant for us. And so we're going to take some time this morning and just kind of look through this. And this is what I want us to ask the question. So what do we do with it once we know it? Now, we're going to know it. We're going to look at it. We're going to try to experience it. And my prayer is that you'll have some moments when you experience it like you haven't experienced. I'm praying that the God will open up our eyes and reveal new things to us. Verse 1, chapter 53 of Isaiah. If you don't have a Bible, you can listen. I'm going to kind of, it'll be descriptive enough to, to follow along. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Here's what I want to do. I just want to look at three things. Now, I want to be honest with you. In the first service, I had 20 points. Today, in this service, we have three. And all of God's people said, amen. All right, we're not walking through 20 points. We got three. All right. Steve Scott's especially glad about that running the screen up there. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And here's the first thing we see about this this moment in time. We've been talking about all in. And today we're talking about the moment, the biggest moment in the history of the world when somebody went all in. And Jesus went all in for us. And the first thing we see in this passage, and it's a fascinating thing, even before we get to the crucifixion, even before we get to the description of what happened to him on the cross, we see this, that from the beginning, when he becomes a man, he's rejected. Look what it says about him. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like the root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Here's what it's saying from the very beginning. He was very ordinary looking. 
In fact, if you put a lineup of people and said which of these people is best looking, Jesus would have fallen at least in the middle, if not below the middle. He was not an attractive man. He was ordinary, below ordinary, average. Nothing distinguished him from anyone else. He was not a Hollywood A-lister. He was not somebody that people looked at and go, wow. Now, we are not comfortable with that. And here's how I know we're not comfortable with that. It's because every depiction I have ever seen of Jesus makes him good looking. When I was growing up, I went to Sunday school. I mean, went to Sunday school growing up, right? When I was in Sunday school growing up at First Baptist Church in Dyersburg, Tennessee, in our Sunday school room, there was a picture of Jesus. How many of you had a picture of Jesus there, right? And there our picture of Jesus, well, I think was the classic picture of Jesus, and it was in this really nice frame, because you don't put a picture of Jesus in a shabby frame. It was a nice frame. None of this plexiglass. It was glass. It was gold on the outside of the frame. And in the middle was Jesus, and it was this picture of Jesus that had him kind of looking off into the distance. Now, now, first of all, let, let's just be honest. He, he was, what part of the world was Jesus from in, in real life? The Middle East, right? This guy looked nothing like anyone from the Middle East. He looked like he rolled straight out of Nashville, all right? And he had this hair that was just flowing. And it, it, looked, like, it looked like he was on a shampoo commercial, like they were, right? And his beard was perfectly trimmed. A couple of thousand years before they had beard trimmers. It was just perfect. No blemishes on his skin. Nothing. I remember growing up in, in our children's church, we used to do flannel graphs. How many of you remember flannel graphs, right? You put the things up on the flannel graph and do the story. And here's what I remember about that. In those flannel graph pictures, Jesus was always the best looking one. Now, Zacchaeus, not so much. He was short, squatty, looked kind of like Quasimodo, right? He was little. Some of you don't know who Quasimodo is, a hunchback of Notre Dame, all right? But Jesus was always the best looking one of on the board. And, and nothing against my children's church experience or the picture of Jesus on the wall, but that is not biblically accurate. He was average. Now, here's what I love about that. The Bible tells us he was average in every way so that he could identify with those of us who are average. And that's most of us. I don't mean to be offensive, but most of you are average looking. Then some of you, well, don't be, look at yourself. I understand, all right? I got you. We, we, we don't have talent scouts in here looking around, all right? It says in Scripture that Jesus was just average, ordinary. Now, now, that was a choice. He's creator of the universe. Have you seen what he created? Have you seen it? You ever been on a mountaintop when the sun is setting? You ever looked out over a lake when the sun's rising? You ever walked out on a day like yesterday? He could have chosen to blow people away with how he looked. But he wasn't. And then it says this. He was despised and rejected by men. 
A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. It says there not only did he not have these appearance that made you think, man, that's a good looking guy. He must be important. Something must be going on. He, he was rejected openly by people. Now, I know today's Palm Sunday and we do think about, as Jeff talked about, people laying down the, 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 their coats on the ground and waving palm branches and that beautiful picture of Jesus walking into Jerusalem and people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But that was an aberration in the life of Jesus. That was not what happened. Now, he had crowds that loved him, but he also had guys that were consistently plotting his death. And the leaders that made determinations in that day, it says, would look at him and say, you're not good enough for us. In fact, it says here that he was consistently undervalued. People looked over him. In fact, the religious leader looked at him and said, hey, listen, we got a Messiah coming. It's going to be great. A new day's coming. You're not good enough to be that. Now, I just want you to think for just a moment uh, about your own life. And then my guess is that all of us at some point in our life have felt, understood this kind of rejection where we have this insecurity about how we look or, or how we perform or what our skills are or people are overlooking us or people don't give us the credit we deserve or, or people are despising us and rejecting us and we don't understand it and there's no reason for it and we just live our lives thinking, wow, wow, wow. When we look at Jesus, he went through exactly the same thing. He was rejected by men, cast aside. And that's like the bottom rung on the step. And the next thing we see is it jumps to the top of the sacrifice. So we see in this passage, not only was he rejected, despised, ordinary. He was also killed for us. I want you to look at this. Starting in verse 4. Surely... He took upon our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Just we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. And then it begins. This is a fascinating thing. Thousands of years or hundreds of years before crucifixion would have even been invented. It begins to describe what Jesus would go through in crucifixion. Verse 5 says he was pierced for our transgressions. Now, I want you to understand that when the word pierced is used there, Jesus actually was pierced with a sword in the midst of the crucifixion. You remember that story, right, where Jesus is hanging on the cross and they begin to look at the time and they realize that this this hours long process, this process of crucifixion that sometimes took days to do, could not take days. The Jewish celebration of Passover was coming. And when the sun went down, they all had to be dead and off the cross because they couldn't defile their sacred holiday with three men hanging on a hillside. And so the people that were in charge of it said, we got to speed this thing up. we got to go. And so they go over there and they break the legs of the other two criminals and they get to Jesus. And one of them says, I think he's already dead. Now, part of the reason they didn't break his legs is because, or the main reason is because there was a prophecy that said no bones would be broken. Jesus fulfilled every prophecy of the Messiah. And so to check whether he was dead or not, they took a sword, spear, and they stuck it into his side up underneath. And the way that you died in crucifixion is that you suffocated. You couldn't breathe. You, You would push up and try to get breath, and you just, your body physically wore out as you went up and down, up and down to get that breath. 
And as you're dying, fluid and water and blood would have begun collecting in the cavity that is inside of your body. So when they pierced his side, that blood and water flowed out. And it says he was pierced because of our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. The, the image there is literally of being overcome by the pressure of a weight on top of you. Crushed. We all know what it means to be crushed, right? We've all crushed a can under our foot or seen a, something smashed or seen the monster trucks roll over cars and crush them. And it says that Jesus was crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And then it says this, and by his wounds, we are healed. The word wounds there give a very vivid picture. The word wounds there actually, the best translation of that is by his whelps were healed. And when I read that, I, I don't, I can't help but thinking about what he went through that day. I mean, it, it talks about the crucifixion here, but it doesn't give the full account. And when you think back of what happened when Jesus is betrayed by one of his own after just showing the full measure of his love, when, when Jesus is arrested in the garden where his disciples are gathered and he's taken away, and you have the biggest sham trial in the history of sham trials as he's run in and out of courts and said, well, you're not guilty. We'll send him over there. Well, he's not guilty. Well, we got to find some way. And the leader's just say you've got to convict him you've got to convict him and no man in the history of the world has ever been completely innocent except Jesus and he's found guilty and they take him and they mock him the creator of the universe is spat upon by Roman soldiers he's blindfolded and punched and someone says if you are who you say you are tell us who you are who just hit you they take the blindfold off so tell us tell us Nothing. Put the blindfold back on and hit him again. The whelps that it talks about here are reminiscent. The picture there is literally of stripes, of, of things that are happening on his back. And then you think about that moment when they would have stripped him naked and tied him to a pole. And they would have used this, this medieval torture device that had shards of pottery and rock in the ends of it. And they would have whipped him 39 times to prepare him for crucifixion. And the whole point of that was to bring that person as close as they possibly could to death without them dying. A lot of people never survived that, but Jesus did. And in those days, they would have whipped and the wards would have wrapped. Most of the time, it would have, was they were whipping, you would have had a trained professional doing it. So it wouldn't have been a, a, a slipshod kind of job. They would have known what they were doing and they would have wrapped it around them so where it even grabbed into the stomach or the chest or the face. And as he ripped it back, ribbons of flesh would have come. And onto his exposed back, they would have put a mock robe and placed a crown of thorns on his head. Those were all just precursors to the main event. 
when he would be led to a hillside. And while his mother, one of his best friends, looked on, he would have been hoisted onto a cross where his arms and his legs would have been nailed. And for hours he suffered for breath and died. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we're healed. Perhaps the most amazing thing about that was not that he was rejected and not that he was crucified, but that he was punished for us. Here's what's interesting about this passage. It says... By his wounds, we, and the true understanding is, have been healed. It's a past tense verb. It's like it's already happened. This is hundreds of years before Jesus is crucified. And yet it says, by his stripes, we have already been healed. And here's what I want you to understand today. We are the ones responsible for his death. He took our punishment upon himself. Now, I know some of you say, I know that, I understand that. Do you know that? Do you understand that? Or is that just fleeting mental knowledge, Jesus died for my sins? Or is it an experiential understanding of the fact that the creator of the world took your place on the cross? I've been a parent now for over 11 years. You know what I've not had happen in my 11 years of parenting? I have never had one of my kids volunteer to take the punishment of one of my other kids. I've never had Eli say to me, I know Luke just did something really bad. Would you punish me instead of Luke? I haven't had that happen. I've never had Luke come up and say, Dad, I know Maddie just disobeyed and she did something and you're going to punish her. I'll take her punishment if you'll let her go free. Never had that happen. I I don't want to hear if your kids have done that. This isn't a contest, all right? You know why? Because we don't do that for people. And yet Scripture says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's Sunday when we start talking about the resurrection, the crucifixion, the last week of the life of Jesus. I would hate for this week to go by and for us not, as Paul says, to know about Christ and Him crucified. It reminds us of our place and the punishment that He took. It says that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. There's not one of us that has done anything to deserve salvation or deserve what Jesus did for us. There is not one of us that has done anything that is commendable in the sight of God on our own. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth. It was like a lamb led. And this picture is just horrifying to think about, but it's there. He was led like a lamb to slaughter. And here's what I want to do. Sometime this week, you can go back and read the rest of Psalm 53. It's, I mean, Isaiah 53. It's just amazing. But look at verse 12. 
Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. And he says, here's the benefit, all right? Here's the reality. Because he died, because he numbered himself among the sinners, because he who knew no sin became sin, that he who had never experienced sin suddenly had the weight of sin of the entire world placed upon him. Because of that, he bore the sin of many and has made intercession on our behalf as transgressors. And here's what it means. Because of what Jesus did for us, we can be free. Now, here's the truth. In our own lives, we have all made mistakes and done to people things we shouldn't do. We have all had people do things to us that shouldn't be done. But because of what Jesus did and because of what was done to him, we can have freedom in Christ. And the question I have for you this morning is not do you understand just mentally, yes, I know Jesus died on the cross. Yes, I know that was something that happened. But is it an experiential thing that has radically transformed your life? Because the truth is, when you know what Jesus has done for you on the cross, living a life where the end of your life is cruising on a boat, playing softball and having seashells is no longer part of the equation. It's not. You want a life that radically proclaims the name of Jesus until the day you get to go be with him. And if there is anything in your mind that is less than that, then you do not know Jesus and him crucified. Now, I'm not talking about salvation issues, although we can talk through that because there are some people that are so confident in a decision they made when they were little and said a few words that they think that that has secured their place in heaven and can do whatever they want to for the rest of their life. And we're not talking about that at this moment. But what I'm saying is, has your life been so radically transformed that everything about what you think is now focused on the cross of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and letting people know that that is what matters in life? You don't have to do a bunch of things to matter in life, but you better know the one thing that matters. Rejected, crucified, punished for us. And it brings freedom. There are some of you here today that have still got stuff you're trying to hold on to, even though Jesus has set you free. You're worried about how you look. Jesus wasn't pretty. He kind of overcame that, right? He was a guy that cared more about what was on the inside than the outside. And we have so twisted that as a culture that it matters completely what it looks like on the outside than on the inside. Some of you have infirmities and illnesses, emotional, physical, and you've not let them go. And Jesus is saying you're free. Some of you have just settled for life being okay. And it's a tragedy in the making. Because the only life that matters is a life that is passionately devoted on fire, living for the glory of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So what do you want to do with your life? What matters to you? When you get to the end, what does success look like? And are you willing to do whatever it takes to go all in towards that vision? Let's pray together.